We're in the end of chapter 3 of Philippians, starting in verse 17. And when I read it, I'm going to include chapter 4 and verse 1, because I think that verse goes with uh, the end of chapter 3. So Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1, and I'm going to pray before I read it. Holy Father, thank you that we come now to the special time of the week when we open your word together as a church community. Presumably, we've all been feeding off your word throughout the week and blessed by that. And we've presumably been taking time to read your word together as families around the table or whenever that happens in individual households. But now we get to gather around your table and experience the blessing of your word in our church community. And that truly is a blessing. And so I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would hear your word and understand your word and believe it and apply it. And I thank you for the blessing that we get to do that together because that truly is a blessing. Amen. Philippians 3, 17. Brothers and sisters, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I trust when I was reading it, you heard the phrase enemies of the cross that's taken directly from the passage. He doesn't use the phrase friends of the cross explicitly, but the idea is there. He is comparing and contrasting two groups of people, the enemies of the cross and the friends of the cross. So we'll look at both. That'll be the sermon this morning. We'll look at both groups of people, see what we can learn. Uh, And and how I want to frame this is that the Friends of the cross, according to this passage, they look outward, they're focused on others, they look outward, and they look upward. Enemies of the cross, by contrast, look inward, they're focused on themselves, and they look downward, they're focused on this earth, this life. Okay? That's the contrast. I'll try to point it out in the passage where I'm getting that. Uh, if, if If these are just my ideas, they're worth very little, but if we can see in the word of God, that this is what God says, then that's worth very much. So we'll start with friends of the cross. Friends of the cross look outward. They're not focused on themselves. They look outward. I get that from verse 17. Paul says, join in imitating me. And here's the phrase, keep your eyes. Okay, we're talking about looking. Keep your eyes, where? On those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Okay? Watch others who are living faithfully. Keep your eyes on them, right? If you only look at yourself, if you only think about yourself, you won't know how to act, right? So he's saying, don't just listen to that little inner voice in your head, you know, that person in your head that's giving a running commentary on your life. 
don't just listen to that voice. Don't expect that that voice is always going to give you accurate information. You need help. You need other voices. That, that advice, to thine own self be true, I know that sounds nice, but that isn't exactly the best advice because sometimes thine own self will lead you wrong. We need examples. Right? This is what mentoring is all about. Right? This is why, for me, I've been meeting every month for the past six years with Pastor John, John Holmes. Right? Because I need that. Because he's someone worthy of imitation. Because I can keep my eyes on him and it helps me to live faithfully in my life. So look around. Look at others. But choose wisely who you look at. Not everyone is worthy of imitation. So who should we be watching? Paul says that we should keep our eyes on those who faithfully follow Paul's example, right? So the Philippians were blessed to be able to know Paul personally. They knew what Paul was like. So they were able to identify people who were following Paul's example, who were living lives similar to the way Paul was living. But what does that mean for us? We didn't know Paul personally. So how do we identify the people who are following Paul, well, we have these letters that Paul wrote. And in those letters, he explained what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, we should be looking for people who are faithfully following Jesus. Specifically looking for people that we can watch and learn from. Recognizing that we don't know all the answers ourselves. But that we need to be watching and listening and learning from others. We need to watch other people who are living faithfully in order to live faithfully. That's the principle here. That's one of the primary reasons I've spent so many hours reading Christian biographies. That's why that's such a big part of my own personal spiritual life. It's, that's, that's exactly why I preach a biographical sermon once a year, every year on Reformation Sunday, because I want to learn from people who lived well. I want to be watching people who ran hard all the way through the finish line in their lives. I'll never meet the vast majority of those people who lived faithfully until I get to heaven, then I will. But reading about them is one way to keep my eyes on them, is one way to learn from them. So here on Reformation Sunday over the past five years, we've, we've heard sermons from Martin Luther, John Calvin, we did William Tyndall, John Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides, remember? We did Lilius Trotter last year. We're, we, I've got another one that I'm planning for this year. Uh, I do that because I want to keep my eyes on people like that. Not because they were perfect, but because they were faithful. I do that in obedience to this verse so that we can keep our eyes on people like that. I've, I've got one picked out for this year. I think this year what I'm going to do is an, announce it well ahead of time and, and recommend a book on her life. And then anyone who wants to can read that book ahead of time so that we can, I can never fit it all into one sermon and then we can all be learning from the life of this person. I'm not saying her name yet because I haven't made a final decision, but when I do, I'll let you know. I want to fill my mind with portraits of godliness and faithfulness. I want to learn from those people. I want to be influenced by those people. It's good to have heroes as long as you choose your heroes wisely. But as valuable as it can be to read about faithful Christians who've gone before us, 
it's of even greater importance to keep your eyes on living people that you know personally that you can watch and imitate, right? Have someone that you can pray with, someone that you can ask questions, someone that will give you a hug when you need a hug and that will give you a kick in the pants when you need a kick in the pants and is wise enough to know the difference, know when to administer which one of those things. Someone that with their words and with their life will point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just ask you simply and honestly, do you have your eyes on people like that? Do you have relationships with people like that? If not, find them and start building relationships with them. There are lots of people like that here at Ebenezer. There are not people here who are perfect. We don't have any of those. There are just people that love Jesus and that are walking according to Paul's example. It's important for us to do this together, right? To get our eyes off ourselves, to look to others who are living faithfully, right? We need that. All right, so that's, that's the look outward, right? Friends of the cross look outward, learn from others, walk with others. They also look upward, verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So just to be clear, when I say look upward, because that's the theme of the sermon where I'm using directions outward, upward, just to be clear though, I don't actually mean that this is a directional thing. I don't mean that heaven is like physically up there somewhere in space, just like floating up there somewhere. I don't mean that. What I mean is that heaven is the place where God is and where the reign of Christ is firmly and perfectly established, where Christ is seated on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. The Bible sometimes gives us a glimpse into the courts of heaven. We get to see what's going on there. We see that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We see the seraphim and the cherubim are surrounding him and worshiping him all the time. One day, we're told, Christ will return here to earth and will establish a perfect new heaven right here on earth where he will reign forever and we will be in his presence forever. And we're told in this passage, our citizenship is there. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. And friends of the cross are looking to that, are longing for that, looking upward to the place where Jesus now sits, watching, waiting, expecting that he will return. So here's how this works. Paul says that we are right now citizens of heaven. Okay, that's not a future status that we'll one day have, that we are right now, this moment, citizens of heaven. But we don't live there, we live here. But our hearts are there while we live here because that is where we're headed. That's our destination. And looking there and thinking about that gives us hope here and it shapes the way that we live here now. It's in, a, in a way, it's, a, it's the opposite of the way earthly citizenship works. When you think about your earthly citizenship, you think about where you came from. When you think about your heavenly citizenship, you think about where you're going, where you will be. Here on earth, if a citizen of one place moves to another place, that person is now considered an outsider, a foreigner, 
right? And, and you can spot them right away. Uh, I'll give you an example. I, I know I am a foreigner here, but my example is about the, when I moved to Georgia. When I was, a, I was a real foreigner in Georgia, even though that was my country, I stuck out way more when I lived in the Deep South. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I heard people say, you ain't from around here, are you, boy? Uh, they, they knew. They knew, right? Uh, they knew. Two things gave me away. One, I don't say y'all. <laughs> I just don't. And I don't like grits. Those two things alone gave me away every time, right? Nobody, nobody where I grew up said y'all. Nobody where I grew up ate grits. I didn't even know what grits were until I moved to the South. So I didn't stand out in my hometown. I fit right in. But when I brought my Yankee ways with me into the Deep South, I stood out. My place of origin marked me out as a foreigner when I went into a new place. My history traveled with me. I couldn't get away from it. Here, Paul is saying that heavenly citizenship works the opposite way. We're foreigners here on earth, but we look upward to the place where we're headed, where we'll live one day. And as we look upward, we await the Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The place of our destination, as we look forward to that, it rubs off on us now and makes us stand out now here in this foreign place. So we fix our eyes on Jesus and we begin acting more humble, more loving, more selfless, more compassionate, more kind, acting more and more like a citizen of heaven than a citizen of earth. And eventually we'll stand out, right? And people will come up to us and say, you're not from around here, are you? Right? And then at that point we can tell them, no, 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 I am. I am from around here, but here is not my destiny. I'm from here, but I'm headed somewhere else. And I've already got my eyes fixed on that place, and that place is totally different than this place, and that place is starting to rub off on me before I even get there. Right? And that person is either going to slowly back away, or they'll be curious enough to ask you for an explanation about that. So that's where Friends of the Cross are looking looking outward at other faithful examples so that we can imitate them, and looking upward to the place of our citizenship where the Lord Jesus is currently reigning and from which he will one day return and establish his reign here. All right, but we said there are two kinds of people, friends of the cross and enemies of the cross. Now we need to talk about enemies of the cross. Being an enemy of the cross does not necessarily mean that you're a loud atheist who publicly mocks Jesus. It could mean that. There are people who do that. But that's only the most obvious form of being an enemy of the cross. I don't think we need to spend much time on that, on that way of being an enemy of the cross, because people who do that know full well what they're doing. I'm more concerned this morning with people who whose lives are opposed to the truth of the gospel and are therefore enemies of the cross, but don't fully realize it. Don't realize what they're doing. Don't realize how they've positioned themselves as enemies of grace, enemies of the cross. As a parallel, I think of doctors back in the 1940s. Um, doctors would sometimes prescribe cigarettes to people who were feeling a lot of stress. I have a friend 
whose mom, not that long ago, her mom died of cancer from smoking. And uh, the reason she started smoking was because her doctor, when she was much younger, uh, told her that she should, told her that it will be good for your health. If you start smoking, it'll help you to calm down and just take everything in stride. So that doctor, by his bad counsel, actually made himself the cause of my friend's, the cause of death of my friend's mom. What I'm saying is this, you can be an enemy of the cross without even knowing it, not even realizing. You can make yourself an enemy of the cross by openly mocking God, right, in which you know what you're doing, living a, a selfish and indulgent hedonistic life, living only for your personal pleasure, but you can also be an enemy of the cross, I want you to hear this, you can be an enemy of the cross by obeying all the rules, and by being a good person, and by telling others that it's all up to you, and up to what you do, and as long as you're good enough, God will accept you. That, too, is being an enemy of the cross. So in that sense, both the, both the pagan Romans with all their excesses and all their false gods, as well as the Pharisees with their massive books of laws, they were both positioning themselves as enemies of the cross because they both lived in a way that rejects God's grace. Right? So here's where the enemies of the cross are looking. They're looking inward and they're looking downward. Listen to what Paul says about them. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So they're looking inward at themselves and they're looking downward at earthly things. Their God is their belly, he says, and they glory in their shame, right? Constantly looking inward, constantly looking at themselves, having the world, their world revolve around themselves, right? Their God is their belly, asking themselves, what do I want right now? That's Paul's way of saying they worship their own desires. The pleasure seeker does so by trying to experience as much pleasure as possible, no matter what the cost, no matter who it hurts, no matter uh, anything else. I just, I just want to be happy. I'm living for my own happiness. The Pharisee, on the other hand, does it by trying to regulate everything he eats in an attempt to justify himself through the foods he does or doesn't put in his mouth, right? Through his own self-discipline. Both are forms of self-worship. Making your belly your God, trying to find salvation, either through indulging your appetites, appetites or through regulating your appetites. They glory in their shame. The pleasure seeker has seared his conscience so badly that not only is he not ashamed of the sinful things he does, he's proud of it, he celebrates it. They glory in their shame. Keep in mind what Paul has just finished saying about his own law-keeping and good works in the, in the previous part of chapter 3. Right? He says he was blameless according to the law, but now he considers all those good works, all that law-keeping, that's all rubbish. It's all refuse. It's all garbage. It's good for nothing. He says, I count it all loss. I forget what lies behind in order that I might gain Christ. Enemies of the cross do the opposite. They're constantly looking at what they've done, looking at what lies behind. Look at my works. Look at what I've done. Aren't you impressed? And Paul says it's shameful. So living for your desires and glorying in your shame takes two opposite forms. 
either of which will make you an enemy of the cross. Worshiping your own personal pleasure or worshiping your own good works, either way, that makes you an enemy of grace and therefore an enemy of the cross because you're focused on yourself. So that's looking inward, but also looking downward, having their minds set on earthly things, living for this earth. The pleasure seeker lives for the next thrill, the next high, the next bite, the next whatever, trying desperately to find ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world. But that's a never-ending cycle because those things never completely satisfy. So you have to keep eating, keep drinking, keep purchasing. And it's not as though the things of this world are bad things. This world has some wonderful pleasures for us to experience, but the things of this world aren't ultimate. And if you ask them to be, they'll let you down. It would be like trying to drink a glass of gasoline to quench your thirst, right? Gas is good, it's a useful liquid, but, but there's nothing wrong with, with, with gasoline, but its purpose is not to quench your thirst when you're hot and sweaty. And if you try to use it that way, you're going to be disappointed. That's kind of what it's like to live with your mind set on earthly things. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. Many of us know this from personal experience, right? And you, you see someone living like that, and you just want to grab them and say, Stop! L- look up! Look around! There's a better way! That won't satisfy you. It definitely won't justify you. But then the flip side is when people set their mind on earthly things by living for good works, living for their own law-keeping, thinking that they justify themselves by what a great and good person they are, really believing that their standing with God is dependent on what they do while they're here on earth, putting all of their good works on one side of the scale and hoping that that outweighs some of the bad things that they've done. That, too, is a form of setting your mind on earthly things because your good works Those are earthly things. And that doesn't satisfy either. That leaves people constantly wondering, have I done enough? Will I measure up to God's standard? And this is why there really only are two kinds of people. There are friends of the cross who love grace, who receive God's gift of salvation by grace, through faith, who have their eyes fixed on that, And there are enemies of the cross who refuse grace. As we've seen, being an enemy of the cross can take radically different forms, but in the end it comes down to the same thing. Enemies of the cross refuse to receive the free gift of eternal life. And those two groups of people are headed to radically different destinies. Paul says that the enemies of the cross are headed for destruction. They will eventually come To the point when God says to them, like C.S. Lewis said, okay, then your will be done. Have it your way. If you want to refuse the free gift of eternal life, I won't force it on you. I'll allow you to do that. And their end, according to Paul, is destruction. But for those who humble themselves at the foot of the cross, who recognize there's nothing they can do to earn their salvation or to pay God back, who repent of their sin, and call on the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, their eternal destination is secure because it is not dependent on earthly things. It is dependent on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await 
a Savior. Okay, one final point to make in this sermon, and it's this. After talking about the ultimate destination of those who are friends of the cross, receivers of grace, Paul then reminds us that there are implications to that here and now. This isn't just about the future. This isn't just about when we die or when Christ returns. There's implications to that right now. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, right, in the light of everything I just said, because your citizenship is in heaven, because your eternal destination is secure, therefore, stand firm. Stand firm now, here, in the Lord. You see, there are practical implications to all of this. Right now, in this moment, we find ourselves kind of between two worlds, right? We're here now in this world, but we're citizens of that world. Aliens here, passing through here, not citizens here, but on our way there. And because that's the case, we can stand firm here now. Because there's nothing that can happen in this world that can take away our inheritance in that one. So stand firm. Whatever the world throws at you, stand firm. Stand shoulder to shoulder with those who have lived with the good confession on their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Stand firm in the face of temptations and lies and persecutions from the evil one. Stand firm knowing that if the world hated Jesus, it will hate his followers too. And so we don't ask to be taken out of the world. We stand firm while we're in the world. And the way we do that is by looking outward at others who are living lives worthy of invitation and who can help us along the way. And by looking upward at Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray together. Lord God, we want to live as friends of the cross. We want to live lives by grace, full of grace, receiving grace, embracing grace, extending grace to others. We recognize that the cross is all about your grace to us, and we want to live lives accordingly so help us to do that i know that you've surrounded us here in this church with so many wise and mature and godly people who are following hard after you and honoring and glorifying you with their lives and who are living lives worthy of imitation not perfect but faithful i thank you that we can run this race together and i pray that we would uh, take advantage of and, and experience all the blessings of having one another from whom to gain support and encouragement as we live out this life. I pray that we as individuals and we as a church would always be marked by, defined by grace, the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would never, ever set ourselves up as enemies of the cross. That we would never be so presumptuous or arrogant as to think that our works and our behavior is somehow securing our salvation or that we're somehow better than others who are uh, not meeting a certain standard that we have in our mind. May we never, never walk down that path but recognize that all of the Christian life from start to finish is about your grace to us. In Christ's name, amen.